Hi, this is Chris Foreman from Madness, and you're listening to the Stateside Madness podcast. <laughs> Hi there, folks out there. I'd like you to meet Tommy McGuire's combo. Hello, and welcome to the Stateside Madness podcast, the one and only podcast of the official Madness American fan service. I'm Lori, along with my co-host Polly, here to bring you news, reviews, and deep dives into the nutty sound of the British pop band Madness. Hello, welcome to the Stateside Madness podcast. I'm Lori. And I'm Polly. Polly, how was your Easter? Easter was uh, fine. Yeah. As you might expect. It's not a big, big thing for me, but but that's okay. I got candy. We saw your Easter eggs in the MIS newsletter. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, family obligations, you know, you've got to do Easter eggs. So I decided to do a little bit of madness themed. And what do you know? We put it on Stateside Madness. MIS picks it up all in the span of a couple hours, which I thought was kind of peculiar. But whatever, it's just eggs, people. You so yeah, you're international now. Your Easter eggs are international. But <laughs> was your family wondering, like you had an egg that said Tamo? Were they like, who's Tamo? <laughs> no, no, it requires no explanation. They know all about my bullshit. All right. Well, that was cool. I thank you for sharing those. Um, what are we doing today on our episode? Do you know? In fact, <laughs> I do, because I showed up. So today, what we're going to talk about, maybe this is the first part. Maybe we'll revisit this again. But uh, Lori has been diligent in uh, researching bands that were influenced by madness, you know, in American bands at that. So us being the American branch of MIS, you know, the official Madness fan service, we wanted to, you know, bring a bit of the American edge to it. You could go on and on and on about British bands, maybe who were influenced by Madness, but uh, we narrowed it down to American bands. And, uh, you know, so far as that goes, we could have probably scrounged up quite a bit more, but we're going to stick to what we've got here. Like I said, maybe there's a second episode in here somewhere. So why are we doing this episode? Well, as our listeners know, we are the American branch of MIS, which is the official Madness fan service. And in doing this, we aim to show that Madness have been important to American music. And as we're going to see, actually a little bit American television too. We really want to kind of emphasize that they have been very influential, even if perhaps a lot of Americans don't know who they are beyond the song, Our House. And most importantly, we want to impress on Madness Band Management that we need our American tour. Goddamn right we do. So let me just apologize right now to our listeners. One of my cats is just going crazy in the background with this crinkly cat tunnel that's what you're hearing now. Um, I'm going to try and, and minimize that as much as I can, but I am <laughs> so sorry. Um, that's just kind of where we are today. Something we wanted to mention, because it might get confusing 
to folks who are familiar with the ska scene in general is that uh, we're going to include a lot of the third wave ska bands in this, but this isn't an episode dedicated to third wave ska bands. More importantly, it's an episode dedicated to folks that were influenced by madness. So it's not going to be strictly ska and certainly not going to be strictly third wave ska, but it's no coincidence that the bands are probably going to be mostly from that era. So try to play along and uh, we'll try to make the distinctions whenever we can. Well, so as Polly mentioned, I've been doing a lot of research for this episode and I want to highlight some of the resources that I used. So one major resource that I've relied on for this episode is a book called Hell of a Hat, The Rise of 90s Ska and Swing by Kenneth Partridge in Defense of Ska by Aaron Carnes and a documentary film that's called Pick It Up, Ska in the 90s, which was written by Heather Augustin. She also has a, a book out that's an oral history of Ska, which I have not read, but I do intend to check out. So those were the three main sources that we've used for this episode. To a lesser extent, we've also used Wikipedia and the band web pages to fill in the blanks here and there, things like dates, band member names and such. But I, I think it's very important to kind of give a shout out to those three sources that we use. So thank you to Kenneth Partridge, Aaron Carnes, and Heather Augustin. All right, so let's get right into it. This isn't going to be too dissimilar from how we do countdowns for songs. We may as well start closer to the beginning. And back in 1978, a band formed in Los Angeles. It was the Go-Go's, a band we've talked about before on the podcast, Peers to Madness and Friends of Madness as well. So for those of you who don't remember, we're talking about Belinda Carlisle, Jane Weedlin, Charlotte Caffey, Gina Schock, and Kathy Valentine, members of the Go-Go's. Why don't we listen to Our Lips Are Sealed? good memories from that song. So as we had talked about in episode 32, Madness and the Go-Go's met in California when the Go-Go's opened for Madness. And Madness invited the Go-Go's on their tour of the UK and Europe. So as a result of them being on this tour, and of course, Madness being on Stiff Records, the Go-Go's recorded their first single, We Got the Beat, on Stiff Records. And that kind of led to all kinds of fame. And as we now know, you know, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, Madness were, were a huge influence on their career starting out. So another band, which also started in 78, was The Waitresses. Now, they started in Akron, Ohio. And this one was interesting to me because I know The Waitresses very well. I know we actually included one of their songs in our last holiday episode 
but I had no idea that madness was actually an influence on the band. The waitresses were founded by guitarist songwriter Chris Butler, lead vocals by Patty Donahue, jazz saxophonist Mars Williams, drummer Billy Ficka, who was formerly from the band Television, keyboardist Dan Clayman, bassist Dave Hofstra, and backing vocalist Ariel Warner. So here's the connection to Madness. And, and, and you know, we don't really think of the waitresses, they're not really a ska band. But Chris Butler saw Madness on their first US tour at the Hurrah nightclub in New York back in 1979. And the experience of seeing Madness completely changed his perspective on music. He loved the energy, he loved the upbeat rhythm, and that started to kind of seep into the waitresses' songs. So they're best known for the uh, MTV hit, I Know What Boys Like, the song Christmas Rapping, which we heard in our holiday episode, and this song, which was the theme song from the television show Square Pegs. influence in that one can't you yeah absolutely i think so um you know it's got that oddball aesthetic to it like you said you might not really recognize that there's a madness influence there and to be sure influences don't always make their way you know into recordings a couple of things i would like to point out about the personnel lineup uh you did say say that billy ficka had been the drummer for television I would want to minimize that fact. Remember, television was one of the original New York punk bands from the CBGB scene. They, they sometimes, um, I wouldn't say resent, but are somewhat eschew the term punk. They were very much sort of an avant-garde, um, you know, jazz, rock, garagey almost. Nevertheless, Billy Fick, a huge player, to think that uh, he, after television's short time span just went on with this unsigned unknown band um that's pretty much a big deal also dave hofstra left i believe almost immediately uh, but he was on the recording for i know what boys like but if you watch videos you'll see that there's an african-american lady by the name of tracy wormsworth a fantastic fantastic bassist and added a great deal to the band. But much like television, uh, The Waitress is very short-lived. So uh, unfortunate in that, that we didn't get to see more of the band and more of Tracy. Wow. <laughs> so I didn't need to do the research. You got this. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. Thank you. Do you remember the TV show Square Pegs at all, Polly? It was like, what, 82, 83? 
So all I really remember is that uh, it was Sarah Jessica Parker and who was the other woman in that? Well, would have been a girl, I suppose, then, but she went on to do quite a few things. But the idea was that they were nerdy girls in high school, right? Something like that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that might have actually been Sarah Jessica Parker's first first uh, acting gig first major acting gig anyway Uh, I think you'd say first major I wouldn't couldn't think of anything else so yeah probably okay so next up I'm so excited about this one this is like one of my favorite bands of all time Polly you know this because I go on about this a lot Boingo Boingo Now, I was actually quite surprised, pleasantly surprised, to learn that there was actually a madness connection there. You know, that there's two of my favorite bands in the world, and to learn that one is kind of inspired by the other was really, really cool to me. So Oingo Boingo were formed in 1979 in Los Angeles as the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. Now, they were actually created for a movie that Uh, Danny Elfman's brother Richard was creating and that's kind of where they got started the the band lineup has changed a little bit over the years but for the most part the band lineup has been Danny Elfman on vocals and rhythm guitar John Avila on bass guitars and vocals Steve Bartek on guitars Mike Basich on keyboards John Vatos Hernandez on drums and percussion Sam Phipps on tenor saxophone Leon Schneiderman on baritone and alto saxophone, and Dale Turner on trumpet and trombone. Now, I think probably most of our listeners will know Oingo Boingo from their work on movie soundtracks, Weird Science and Dead Man's Party, which was from the movie Back to School. It's actually a very memorable scene of a very young Robert Downey Jr. dancing to that song in the movie. But in interviews, both Danny Elfman and John Avila have identified madness as an influence. Danny Elfman said, I wasn't a fan of 70s rock at all, but when I heard all this energetic stuff coming out of England, that is what totally did it for me. Bang. You can probably see some parallels here, uh, besides the fact that there is a little bit of a ska influence in some of their songs. They are an eight-piece band with a horn section. And Madness were a seven-piece band with a horn section. So you can kind of see there's some parallels there. John Avila, by the way, would later go on to produce the Madness song La Luna, which was on the album Wee Wee Sisi Ya Ya Da Da. So I really, I was going through, Polly, my uh, Oingo Boingo collection to try and find the song that I wanted to play. So this is off their album good for your soul it's called who do you want to be So 
a great song by a great band. Glad that they're included. Proud to know that there's a bit of a uh, connection between Madness and Oingo Boingo. It's curious that the quote you picked from Danny Elfman um, alluded to his not being a fan of 70s rock. As I've thought about Danny Elfman and uh, what he's done, I've often made the parallel between him and Frank Zappa. You've probably heard the phrase before, somebody sort of seeing music. And I think that's a trait that probably Danny Elfman and Frank Zappa share. It's one thing to visualize or perhaps lay down or um, compose parts on a five-piece band. But when somebody's doing it with participants where there's eight, 12, 16, 30 plus more pieces, um, which I do believe Oingo Boingo and Zappa have both done, uh, that, that's a special type of songwriter. And Danny Elfman certainly has that in spades. So good on him. Uh, quite the visionary. You know, often visionaries kind of fall short. You kind of got to have the goods to back it up. As in, you know, it ain't got a thing if it ain't got that swing. And Oingo Boingo songs sound good besides the intricacy of them. Definitely, definitely. And, and they really have that same kind of quirkiness, I think, that we, we are familiar with from a lot of Madness songs. Danny Elfman, by the way, was just at Coachella last weekend, and I was starting to watch some of the videos from it. Oh my gosh, I would have killed to be there. That was amazing. Danny Elfman has also gone on to do a lot of soundtracks for both movies and television. And in some of the soundtracks, you can also kind of hear a little bit of that nutty sound, right? Like um, thinking of the Mr. Breakfast song from Pee-wee's Big Adventure. All right, and back to Southern California, specifically Los Angeles, 1981, in the formation of the band that would become the Untouchables. Now, the singer, Kevin Long, described them as mods who played ska music, and they definitely had a soul ska mod fusion sort of thing going on. The original lineup, along with Kevin Long on vocals, was Chuck Askernese, we had Terry Ellsworth on rhythm guitar, Clyde Grimes on guitar, Rob Lampern on drums, Herman Askernese on bass, and Jerry Miller on vocals as well, along with Timbales. Now, the Untouchables, taking from the two-tone ska scene, were noteworthy for being an interracial band. Good on them, can always use that. And in 1984, Dave Robinson of Stiff Records approached them and offered to sign them to Stiff. They did an eight-month promotional tour of England and Europe, and along the way, several members of that band, yes, that's right, Madness, showed up at their show at Dingwalls in London. Now, we're about to play I Spy for the FBI. There's another notable player, literally a player, that's Jerry Dahmers. He played keyboard on the song. Let's take a listen.
you know, I had never heard of this band prior to this episode, and I like what I hear. Uh, they're not specifically ska. I think that they really kind of lean more towards the soul, especially I think their later stuff. You know, again, so did Madness, right? Madness were very heavily influenced with soul and Motown and that kind of a cross-pollination I think is really cool. And you mentioned that it was significant that they're an interracial band. I think specifically United States, 1981, that was really, really unusual. You know, over on the other side of the pond, you know, we had like the specials, we had the English beat, right? We had some of the two-tone bands that were, you know, more interracial, but over here, that really was very uncommon. So that was really significant. That it was. Uh, That has probably as much to do with AOR FM radio, probably as a lot of things. You know, this is the era of big bands, multi-million dollar contracts and things like that. There was definitely an effort to pigeonhole bands um, into certain genres and probably mostly based on race. So, um, you know, there's very few bands that broke through that. And so consequently, bands are determined to be either black or white bands and white bands go to play in these certain venues in certain towns black bands, the same thing. And so consequently, you might be exposed to certain types of music solely based on what neighborhood, what city you lived in. And so, and then that, of course, perpetuates that particular little scenario or problem or whatever you want to call it. But uh, yeah, the Untouchables, I think it's noteworthy too about I Spy for the FBI and the Untouchables is while they were not considered of the two-tone error necessarily, they were right, 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 right behind it. And um, so they're not really a third wave ska band at all. They're sort of in this, in this sort of limbo between the original two-tone and the third wave. By Mayard being American, they're not included in two-tone at all. But, uh, you know, you're really talking about just a, a year or two for the most part. Also in 1981, we have another band that started called the Uptones. Now they started in Berkeley, California. Northern California. As a teenager, Eric Din, who was the guitarist of the Uptones, he saw dance craze with some friends at the University of California Theater. And he said, that movie made us realize this was the most danceable music in the world. The specials, the selector, madness, the English beat, it was foreign to us. Most of us didn't know this stuff existed until we saw that movie. And I think that that's actually probably true of a lot of American audiences at that time, but it seems like it was on the coasts. On the West Coast, primarily California, the scene really caught on. East Coast to a lesser extent, like the New York, Boston, Washington, D.C. area. But it seems like this missed a lot of middle America. After seeing this movie, Right, and seeing Madness and the other bands in this movie. Eric Din and his friend Eric Rader got an idea, let's start a band. And so the Uptones were born. So the original lineup was Eric Rader on vocals, Eric Din on guitar, Charles Stella on guitar, Ben Eastwood on bass, Thomas White on drums, Gregory Blanche on keyboards, Michael Wadman on trombone, 
Paul Jackson on trumpet and Kenny Brooks on tenor sax. Now the uptones blended ska with the energy of punk. The punk scene was hitting very hard in the late seventies or early eighties. So the uptones would become hugely influential on the California underground music scene and on many bands to follow. Here's one song by the Uptones. It's called Get Out of My Way. like that Polly so I I do like the song and we'll be talking about another band coming up Rancid no uh, surprise that Rancid actually covered Get Out of My Way so that's how I became familiar with the song first but like you just said we're seeing a bit of a theme developing here Southern California maybe you could say California in general seems to be at least by if you uh, judge it on the bands we've selected today seems to really pick up the mantle a bit with ska, ska punk, pop punk, things like that. Up next, King Django. Now, King Django was actually the stage name of Jeffrey Baker, uh, Jeffrey being from Brooklyn and performing since about 1986, we believe. Now, he is a bit of a journeyman. He was the leader of the Stubborn All-Stars, Skinner Box, and the King Django Band. He also worked with a whole host of folks. We just mentioned Rancid. He has worked with them. He's worked with Murphy's Law, the Slackers, and the Toasters. Now, he first discovered Ska through the Madness Song of the Prince, and then he spent the next few years learning everything he could about the two-tone scene, but more particularly about its roots in Jamaican Ska. Now, that kind of instilled in him a bit of a passion, and he is well known for being a bit of a purist about Jamaican ska, about rocksteady, reggae, dub, and dancehall. I'd even throw in there a little bit of lover's rock, too. In one of his songs, Judge Not, like you might guess, it's a takeoff of Prince Buster's Judge Dread. The judge orders a bandwagon-jumping wannabe, Rude Boy, to learn his ska history by listening exclusively to the Scatolites and Prince Buster. We quoted that from Kenneth Partridge's book, Hell of a Hat, The Rise of 90s Ska and Swing. King Django, he also recorded a Klezmer Ska album in honor of his Jewish heritage. If you listen back to episode 38 of the Stateside Madness podcast, you'll see that we played his cover of Night Boat to Cairo as the closing song for the Madness at the movies episode. But right now, why don't we take a listen to Tin Spam by King Django and the Stubborn All-Stars. This 
He's very much a, a purist for a traditional ska reggae rock study. And I was actually reading, there was a point when the, the whole third wave ska, ska punk started to really come into vogue. And, you know, the record labels were signing all of these third wave ska punk bands. And they were encouraging King Django to kind of follow in that same mold. And he really got upset with the record labels and said, you know, they're calling it ska, but do you not hear the difference between what I'm doing and what they're doing? So he kind of took offense at that. The other thing I thought was really interesting is, you know, being that he is Jewish, the more I thought about it, the more I thought that made sense because there really is a lot of overlap, I think, between Jewish beliefs and like the Rastafarian belief right? Uh, they, they both put a lot of emphasis on like the Old Testament, you know, Deuteronomy, some of the, the older books. So, I mean, there's definitely some similarity there. So I guess that, to me, that actually is kind of cool that we got this, uh, this guy who, you know, kind of picked up on, on this art form and ran with it. But the interesting thing, as you said, Polly, is he never would have heard of this if he hadn't heard The Prince by Madness. And by hearing that song, and he was intrigued and wanted to know, oh, who, who's this prince, this Prince Buster? And that encouraged him to find his, his love, I guess, right? His, his genre. So now back to California, back to the other coast, back to Berkeley again. So we had the Uptones in Berkeley, California. And now in 1987, we have another band called Operation Ivy. Now the Uptones were a huge influence on Operation Ivy. So was Madness. Operation Ivy is huge. They're probably one of the most influential bands on the entire third wave ska. In fact, John Feldman of the band Goldfinger was quoted as saying, ska punk didn't exist before Operation Ivy. So the original lineup of the band was Jesse Michaels on vocals, Dave Mello on drums, Tim Lint Armstrong on guitar, and Matt McCall Freeman on bass. Now, if those last two names sound familiar to you, Polly, it's because they would later go on to found the ska punk band Rancid. So what's the madness connection here? Well, the drummer, Dave Mello, he was not familiar with this type of music, right? When they formed the band and they said, we want to be a ska band. So... Tim Armstrong told him to go listen to four bands, Madness, The Specials, The English Beat, and The Selector. They focused on those four particular bands to kind of learn the sound and learn how to play. And then, of course, they blended it with more of the punk aspects. Like I said, one of the most influential bands on the entire third wave of Scott. 
one of the songs that they're best known for is this one. It's called Sound System. Let's listen. What can really be said about sound system aside from just like you said, uh, it's probably one of their most noteworthy songs. But it's really a classic of the genre. You know, it, it's much beloved as was Operation Ivy. In the case where the band sort of shot to, wouldn't say uh, stratospheric heights or anything like that because they weren't particularly well known throughout the States, you know, certainly huge in Southern California, you know, coastal California, San Francisco area. But yeah, they weren't, uh, they weren't massive, massive, massive. But, you know, as time rolled on, once they had disbanded, you know, it's almost like uh, their status and their legend grew outsized really what the band might have been originally. It's probably 1995 or 96 before I had even heard of Operation Ivy. But when I did, wow, wasn't it a real game changer for me? And uh, yeah, I mean, their their legacy is huge and always so much talk of whether they'd reform. It, it's almost perennial as concert season rolls around. People are like, our operation might be going to get back in the game. But alas, it hasn't happened. You know, what you just mentioned about like the legend almost being bigger than the the truth, right? The, the actuality of the band. That reminds me a lot of the Sex Pistols. It was the same kind of thing, you know, the Sex Pistols were actually a very, very short-lived band, uh, but over the years, the legend kind of grew and grew, and their influence was felt on so many hundreds of bands that came after, and the same, I think, with Op Ivy, right? I think, you know, while they were still around, maybe they weren't as big, but it's like a stone being thrown into a pond, and there are these ripples, right, and those ripples affect all of the all the music to come. Okay. So, 1984 in Boston, Massachusetts. My friends, the mighty, mighty Bostones. So, uh, the Bostones, uh, when I say they're my friends, that's a huge exaggeration. In fact, I've only run into a couple of them a couple of times. But, um, you know, I grew up in northern New England and uh, bands from Boston that have a strong identity with Boston, end up becoming uh, hometown heroes for all of New England. And it certainly was the case with the Mighty Mighty Bostones. Now, the Bostones really, really, really wore their two-tone influence on their sleeve. They didn't just develop their style from it. They developed their image from it. They took to heart the multiracial aspects of the two-tone era. And they, I think, probably best understood that doing a direct reproduction of a two-tone style was just not going to be sustainable for somebody 
starting a little bit later, you know, really than the two-tone era. So back in 1984, they kind of were starting to get the wheels going and thinking about what they were going to do. Dickie Barrett took a Greyhound bus from Boston to New York to see Madness in 1984. He happened to see them on Saturday Night Live. He and a friend spent the rest of the evening hanging out with the band. And you may remember that we mentioned that in a previous episode, but it's also mentioned in the Total Madness liner notes from the 1997 compilation. The original band lineup, though the lineup would change over the years, was Dickie Barrett on lead vocals, Nate Albert on guitar and backing vocals, Joe Gittleman on bass and backing vocals, Joe Sirwa on drums, Johnny Vegas Burton on saxophone, Kevin Lanier on saxophone, Dennis Rockenborough on trombone, Ben Carr, the Boston, on backing vocals. Now, the band was originally called the Boston's, but no surprise, there was another band that had the same name. So, you know, they developed it into the mighty, mighty Boston's. You know, a bit of a, a bit of a rub, I suppose, probably for the actual original Boston's. Ben Carr, originally he was a roadie for the band, but the venue would not let him in because he was underage. Dickie Barrett told the club owner that Ben was part of the band, so he'd have to be allowed inside. He jumped on the stage and skanked around while the band performed and thus became an official member of the band. And we may have heard a sort of similar story to that. You know, that's kind of how Chaz started. Uh, he was a dancer for Madness. There you go. Now, the boys' trademark was plaid suits, reminiscent of the plaid jackets Madness wore in the embarrassment video. Now, I had the pleasure of picking the song, and I think we should play Someday I Suppose. There was a place, and the name of the place escaped me. When I can't remember, it irritates me. Could be I can't remember, could be I choose to not. Let's move along the song and try to find the plot. There was a girl, and I don't know her name either. She gave me love, and I said I'd never leave her. If I did, I'd come back someday. then Lori go ahead tell me what your thoughts are on the Boston's all right well this is one of those bands that I knew by reputation and I seem to remember a lot of talk about the mighty mighty Boston's on the BBS's in the mid to late 90s I confess I had never heard anything by them until this weekend and I think I commented to you Polly after I listened I was very surprised that Dickie Barrett has such a gravelly kind of raspy sounding voice. That's not what I was expecting. I can see why they were as big as they were. Why did you choose this particular song, Someday I Suppose? Well, uh, I guess for me, you know, that's off the, that's off the uh, Don't Know How to Party album. Um, and that was pretty much, you know, the midpoint kind of in their heyday, I guess you could say. It really showcases how well they made use of their horn section. I don't want to dismiss any of the bands we've talked about. I certainly won't name any. I'm actually not thinking of anybody. 
But in the whole third wave ska genre, of which you could certainly say the Boston's are dead center in the middle of that thing. Uh, you know, a great deal of it was learning by copying. Um, and so there's an awful lot of, I don't know, structuring horn sections, uh, structuring songs based off of stuff we've already heard, you know, just switching up the melodies, switching up bass lines, you know, all that's quite understandable, but they're still more or less, uh, you know, mimicking. The Boston's, like I said, uh, they didn't think that, you know, just copying would be sustainable. They really adapted their sound to be just outside of what the rest of that genre was going to be doing. I mean, they've got a definite, 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 really defined guitar sound. Um, yes, it's distorted. Yes, it's it's prominent in a lot of, you know, a lot of rock, but uh, you can't do distorted and uh, play on the offbeat particularly well, but they've, you know, they tweaked it. They worked on that. The horn section, super, super strong. And like you said, with Dickie's vocals, they weren't going to be doing a lot of the the real melodic uh, vocal stylings of a lot of the early ska, certainly not like Jamaican ska. So yeah, they had to work that shit out for themselves and they, they managed to do it. So yeah, you know, good on them. They certainly didn't fall into a mold and, you know, they really, they really came up with something pretty special. And they really lasted a long time too. I mean, they just recently broke up a few months ago is that's a pretty long time for a band. Okay, so next up we have a band that I think is very well known and their madness influence is well known and that is No Doubt. So No Doubt began in 1986 in Orange County, California. We're gonna see a lot of the bands that we're gonna be talking about are going to be from Orange County. That seems like it was, I think Monique from Say Ferris said Orange County was ground zero for the third wave ska movement. So Eric Stefani of No Doubt taught himself piano by playing along with Madness songs like Baggy Trousers. And he also introduced his little sister Gwen to Madness. Gwen is, you know, teenager. Well, she developed a huge crush on Suggs. And she also started taking fashion cues from the two-tone ska scene. The band's original lead singer, John Spence, died unexpectedly in December of 1987. And then Alan Mead became the singer for a while. But then ultimately Gwen Stefani took over as the singer. Now she did have some singing experience because she had sung the selector song on my radio in a school talent contest. The original band lineup would be Gwen Stefani on vocals, Eric Stefani on keyboard and vocals, Tom Dumont on guitar, Tony Canal on bass, Adrian Young on percussion and drums, Eric Carpenter on saxophone, Don Hammerstedt on trumpets, and Alex Henderson on trombone. So besides Madness, they were also very heavily influenced by The Untouchables and another band that was big in that time, Fishbone. Eric Stefani left the band after the first album. Now, he actually became an animator for The Simpsons. In the music video for Don't Speak, you'll see that the drummer, Adrian Young, is wearing a Madness t-shirt as a way of paying homage to their idols. And reportedly, Madness actually uh, thanked them for giving them that little 
you know, mention in the form of the t-shirt. And they give a shout out to Madness in the lyrics of their song, Move On. You'll hear the Madness reference when she talks about moving on to our house in the middle of our street. So this is Move On by No Doubt. Okay, what do you think, Polly? Well, um, I, I'll I'll have a little a little bit of a confessional. Um, so about this time, I was really taken with alternative radio and uh, uh, ninety minutes on MTV and stuff like that. I was just far enough past high school that. Uh, I was starting to see the cracks in the music scene and realizing that uh, for the most part, I'm, I'm force fed uh, and told what I'm going to like. And then here comes 90 minutes in alternative radio. And they're saying, you don't have to listen to 38 special and blah, 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 blah. Mind you, I was a young man. So I was starting to figure things out, but just as dumb as a fucking post nonetheless. So uh, what I really wasn't realizing that was that 90 minutes in alternative radio were just as contrived and corporate as anything else. So I wasn't nearly as smart as I was thinking I was. Um, and so, of course, here comes No Doubt. And I'm always a sucker for a pretty punk girl. So the uh, I'm Just a Girl video comes out. And I say... Wow, here's, remember the real low cam camera angle on that video? And she's got big shoes and she's strutting around, kind of reminiscent of Wendy O. Williams, just with, you know, more clothing. And I'm like, wow, this is the girl for me, right? Uh, so I, I bought the album and almost instantaneously, I was like, oh my God, I, 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 absolutely can't stand this and then the years that followed it would get even it would get even more so because they diverted quickly they really they really really took uh, a right turn and straight on to pop and then of course we know what happens a few years later pretty girl goes on to uh worldwide fame and where the, where the hell are those other guys so I, i'm not a fan i'm, I'm never going to be a fan of a story like that and I just was really not a fan of that music, not for very long anyways. I say that with the full confidence of we're never getting Gwen Stefani on the podcast anyways. So yeah. Okay. So I first heard No Doubt, I think it was like maybe 94 or 95 and they were getting a lot of airplay. There were actually two bands that kind of exploded about the same time, No Doubt and Garbage. And at least in, in the area where I grew up, you were either team Gwen or you were team Shirley Manson. 
And there was actually like a little bit of rivalry between the fans. I was team Shirley Manson. I am all about garbage and Shirley Manson. I did like a few of their songs. You know, I did like, uh, I did like Just a Girl. I did like Spiderwebs. Absolutely hate, hate, hate Don't Speak. But that might be because I associate it with a friend and some drama that she was going through with her boyfriend, you know. Ah, no, um, it's a complete dog turd of a song. <laughs> okay. But, you know, she did kind of get away from her original sound and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. Madness got away from their original sound too and we still love them. But Gwen just got weird. She got weird, you know, with her, her fragrance line that was called lamb l-a-m-b for a perfume what the hell but you know and then you know she did uh what was it the voice and married what's his name and uh you know hey so she's made a good life for herself more power to her but uh yeah not really not really my thing either but i i do understand what the appeal was next up voodoo glow skulls now 1988 riverside california the band is formed by brothers Eddie Casilla, Jorge and Frank Casilla, and Jerry O'Neill. Their music was heavily influenced by their Mexican-American heritage. They fused hardcore metal with ska, widely considered to be the first ska-core band. They have cited Madness and Oingo Boingo as two of their influences. Eventually, Boingo's John Avila produced their 1998 album, The Band Geek Mafia. Now, the current band lineup is Edgardo Casilla on guitar, Jorge Casilla on bass, Ephraim Martinez Schultz on vocals, Eric Scazzini on saxophone, Jose Pazoldan on trombone, and Stephen Reese on drums. Now, let's take a listen to Insubordination. What's your take on Voodoo Glow Skulls? Holy crap. I had never heard of them prior to this weekend, Polly. I kind of dig it. I mean, it's it's like heavy metal meets ska, which is very, very unexpected. And then you kind of have a little bit of like the, the Mexican influences, you know, Oingo Boingo again. I want to hear more. I think I'm going to check these guys out a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. They sure are mixing genres there. But, um, you know, I think we've talked about this before. I think I'll mostly paraphrase one of my quotes from before because I'm, I'm crazy about quoting myself. You know, mixing genres can have some real, real bad effects. It's not all chocolate and peanut butter. Sometimes it can be chocolate and tuna salad. Chocolate and tuna I threw up in my mouth a little bit, Polly. Well, there you go. Well, that's what, but it, it, it illustrates a point. You can love chocolate and you can love tuna salad, but you can't mix them together. 
So you have to be really, really concerned and very wary that these things won't blend. But in this case, I think they're really onto something quite special. And uh, I, I enjoyed it a great deal. Now, of course, when you listen to Insubordination, of course, the first thing that stands out is the intro is it's Crazy Train. Uh, it's not stylized. It's Crazy Train. So that leads right into the song that where then it takes off as their own composition. If you were looking for a Mattis influence, of course, you could say in the instrumentation it's there because it's got bass, guitar, vocal, saxophone, trombone, and drums, right? Fine. But, you know, I think they're pulling a great deal more from a band like Fishbone than they are from Madness right there. Because already you've got a tempo that Madness is not going to approach in any one of their songs. And it's not lost on me that these guys are contemporaries with uh, Metallica. You know, it's almost like they skipped over punk and, and mixed ska with thrash, Tejano music, and, you know, they're boom. It's, it's right there. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, quite the tightrope act. There's a million ways for that to probably fall apart. But I've listened to quite a few of their things, and I think they, they do an admirable job of really, you know, doing their own. So uh, good on them. I wish them well. And, yeah, fantastic band that everybody should check out. Okay, first of all. Yes. The album title that you mentioned, The Band Geek Mafia. Think about how many of these horn players, not just in this band, but in a lot of the bands that we've talked about, who were probably band geeks in high school, right? That were probably picked on, made fun of, and all of a sudden, this shit is cool. All of a sudden, you know, you've gone from, you know, sitting in the back of the, the band rehearsal room in, in high school to being on a stage in front of thousands of cheering fans. I mean, that's kind of cool. You know, it, it didn't last very long, unfortunately, for most of these bands. But, uh, you know, I kind of appreciate that. Okay, so next up. This is a fairly well-known band. It's called Real Big Fish, also from Berkeley, California. So much going on in Berkeley here with the music scene. So they began in 1991 while the boys were in high school. So it was originally high school students Ben Guzman on vocals, Aaron Barrett on guitar, and Matt Wong on bass, along with a guitarist and a keyboardist who didn't hang around too long. They started off actually as a cover band. They played covers of Poison and Jimi Hendrix, similar type rock and roll songs. But Aaron Barrett was already a fan of Madness and all the old two-tone stuff. And so he says, I didn't realize it had a name until later. So he liked the music, he liked Madness, he liked two-tone, but didn't really have a, a, a name to identify this with. And then Ben Guzman suggested that they should switch from being a cover band to playing ska. And then Aaron says, we kind of fell into the ska scene backwards. I was like, oh, I love this music. Let's do this. Shortly after that, Ben Guzman did leave the band. So Aaron Barrett took over on lead vocals and they added a horn section and started playing ska punk. Now their lyrics are known for having a very satirical edge to them, right? They had songs like Sell Out, which was about selling out to the record labels. 
and beer, which was actually about alcoholism, even though I think some people kind of interpret it as a party anthem. It's really, it's satire. The lineup has really changed a lot over the years. Aaron Barrett is really the only member who's consistently been there since the beginning. And they did a cover version of the AHA 80s classic, Take On Me, which I love. So if you'll indulge me, Polly, I would like to play Take On Me by Real Big Fish. What'd you think of that? Uh, so <clears throat> those of you who don't know, you should probably figure it out if you're a regular listener, but Lori is by all means our, our you know, pop music maven and I am the sky guy. So it's no wonder she chose this. I'm not gonna lie and say I'm not a fan of the original song. AHA did something very, very remarkable with that song. The video, of course, groundbreaking, but even if you strip that away, that's that's a pop song that it's kind of hard not to embrace. Now, getting back to Real Big Fish, I always knew they were out there, never had any idea who they were. A lot of the third wave ska, I just didn't pick up on for feeling that uh, I had little or no need to. I had two-tone era ska, and about the time that Real Big Fish and a lot of the third wave ska bands were coming out, I was quite content with what I was listening to, but I started going backwards in time and getting a great deal more familiar with Jamaican ska. So I I skipped an awful lot of the third wave stuff. So I, I have zero opinion on Real Big Fish. I really don't know what they're about. I actually never bought any of their stuff. And consequently, I don't think I ever ran across them on the radio or TV. So I got nothing, nothing at all. Okay. Well, I kind of missed the third wave ska movement too. It's very, very short lived movement from like what? Like 96 or 97 to about 99. That's about how long it really was popular. And for a hot minute, I guess all the record companies were trying to sign bands that sounded like this. I was really more in that time period, I into like goth music or industrial, you know, I mean, I was really big on, you know, like ministry and stuff. So this all kind of missed me a little bit. I know there are some people out there that just absolutely love it and listen to it constantly. I don't hate it. You know, if I'm in a room and somebody puts third wave ska on, okay, you know, I can tolerate it. But it is nothing that I go out of my way to listen to. I certainly have never gone out and bought any of it. Uh, The only concert that I've ever been to of a quote unquote ska or ska punk band was less than Jake. And that's only because they were playing at a roller derby, the Windy City Rollers that I happened to be at. I don't dislike them, but 
I'm just not actively a fan. It doesn't really excite me the way, the way Madness does or Oingo Boingo or, you know, a lot of my other favorite bands. This particular genre just, it's just so-so to me. And moving on then to Bucko Nine. Now, Bucko Nine was formed in 1991 in San Diego, California. Uh, the band was founded by bassist Scott Kennerly when he placed a newspaper ad and drummer Steve Bauer and sax player Craig Yarnold answered. Now, they happened to open for the Mighty Mighty Boston's, and Dickie Barrett told them, you guys are probably the worst ska band I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> probably not because after the first few shows, the lead singer was replaced by John Pebsworth, and then Dan Albert on trombone and Anthony Curry on trumpet joined the band to fill out the horn section. Singer John Pebsworth had been obsessed with madness since he bought the album One Step Beyond in sixth grade. He remembers there was a point in high school where a high school student rode around on a Vespa around the neighborhood. He had a trench coat reminiscent of you know the mod scene the trench coat had a madness patch and everybody idolized that kid and no wonder then that john wanted to kind of cash in on that vibe now besides madness the band also drew influences from the bostones and operation ivy neil king who co-produced their album 28 teeth started off as the second engineer for madness so why don't we take a listen to my town? I got the tunes in my pocket and I know that's why man walk to the beach with a bottle of black and tan keys in the velcro where it always should be. Time's ticking by, but it doesn't concern me. I'm killing time with nothing to do. Yeah, it's all I seem to think about or do. My soul is sound when I'm in my hometown. Yeah, no place I'd rather be. My town. My street, give me peace of mind that can't be beat, yeah My town, my street, give me peace of mind that can't be beat Give me peace of mind that can't be beat All right, Lori, so you've had a listen to My Town. What do you think? You know, it kind of starts off a little bit unexpected. It quickly changes direction and that kind of surprised me a little bit i mean i guess it shouldn't have because i'm the one that's doing the research and i know that this is classified as a ska punk band and yet it still kind of took me by surprise a little bit i can see what the appeal is for this band uh you know again this is not a band that i would i think go out and actively purchase any of their music but if it happens to be on i'm not going to change the change the music you know how about you? What are your thoughts? I think this was a new band for both of us, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I may have heard them before, but definitely, definitely had to go dig in back a little bit to uh, kind of refresh my memory. Well, my town right off the bat, you know, that's very reminiscent of, you know, what Madness had done, what the Kinks had done, writing a, a, a nostalgic song about where you live. And it's kind of neat to see that happening in in uh, Southern California, you know, uh, everybody should bring that perspective. It's not unique to Madison. It's not unique to the Kinks or Buccanine. You know, of course, we've got Springsteen's My Hometown, very nearly the same title. We've got John Mellencamp's Little Pink Houses and on and on and on. You know, it's, it's a theme that a lot of people hit on. It's nice to see that they took a shot at it too. 
you know, probably not going to run out and buy Buck and Nine albums, but you know, uh, I, I think they 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 had a good thing there, particularly in my town. The the video for a little bit DIY low budget, pretty endearing too, if you check that out. And moving on them, like we alluded to, we would at some point get to Rancid. Now, Rancid uh, from the ashes of Operation Ivy formed in 1991 in Berkeley, again with Berkeley. This time it would be Tim Armstrong and Matt Freeman uh, kind of heading up the band. They recruited Armstrong's roommate, Brett Reed, as their drummer, and they formed Rancid. Now, as we have previously mentioned, Madness was a huge influence on Tim Armstrong and, of course, Operation Ivy. Now, the current lineup of Rancid, it is Tim Armstrong, Matt Freeman, Lars Fredrickson, he also plays guitar and vocals, and Brandon Steinecker on drums, percussion, backing vocals. And he happened to have replaced Brett Reed in 2006. Why don't we listen to possibly their best known song? It's Time Bomb. Then you better come in It's just a ability that reason that we're so thin They've been that dying and the stories that are true Sink to a collapse, knowing when you're through Black coat, white shoes, black hat, Cadillac yeah. The boys are time bomb Black coat, white shoes, black hat, Cadillac yeah. The boys are time bomb well, back in the hall where they got him living And your rabbit is smarter than that all right then Lori, time bomb well you know i'm embarrassed to say this is one of those bands that i've heard of for years and years and years but i didn't know any of their music you know i thought maybe when i heard this it would ring a bell maybe it's something that i heard somewhere i don't think i've ever heard this before it's not bad you know I, Again, I, I mean, I like kind of the tempo. I like the, the punk edge to it. But again, it's nothing that I, I'm really, you know, rushing out to buy, you know, or, or to go to see them live or anything. So, but you're a big fan, right? So why do you like Rancid so much? Well, I guess I would say as much as they are really proficient musicians, which they are, uh, you know, they're crusaders as well. Tim Armstrong really, really holds that sky flag pretty high. And much like we talked about uh, King Django as being a bit of a purist, Tim Armstrong's not a purist when it comes to ska, but when it comes to, uh, you know, the sort of ska revival sort of stuff, maybe you'd say ska punk, he's definitely all about it. And he's definitely not one to uh, deviate too far from it. You know, he's, he's branched out to things in the sphere of ska punk. You know, he's done dancehall-esque stuff, uh, most notably with dancehall crashers. I'd say he's, he's probably branched into every hybrid American-Jamaican music, save for, you know, I don't think he's done anything that's like lover's rock. But he, um, you know, he's... You know, he's an auteur. He's, he's, he's the guy. And uh, he's just done so much. He's very prolific. He works with a ton, a ton of people. 
He's great in Operation Ivy. He's great in Rancid. He's great doing his solo stuff. And he really, really, you know, he puts a lot of craft, I would, I think I would say, into it. So, you know, he, he is, he's steadfast. He's genuine. Uh, I mean, I, I just think there's a lot to like about him in particular. And of course, Rancid is more or less his like flagship band. So there you go. That's my take. Okay, well, finally, we have the Aquabats. So they were formed in 1994 in Orange County, California. Singer Christian Jacobs, who went by the moniker MC Bat Commander, recalled listening to Madness, The Specials, and Selector, and hearing bands like that as a kid, not really knowing that that was ska. But it was a huge influence on him and on his, his musical taste. So when they were forming this band, Boyd Terry, who was their trumpeter, and his, his name in the band was Cat Boy. They all have kind of wacky nicknames. Boyd worked at a wetsuit company. And so he came up with this idea that we're going to have costumes similar to Devo. And so they have these kind of superhero costumes that they wear and that they're known for. Much like Madness, they became known for their wacky comic sensibility as much as their music. Now, the band lineup has changed much over the years, but the main core has consistently been MC Bat Commander, who is Christian Jacobs, on vocals. Crash McLarson, or Chad McLarson, as his mother calls him, on bass and backing vocals. And Jimmy the Robot, or James Briggs, on keyboards, saxophone, and woodwinds and backing vocals. Their drummer from 1997 to 98, the Baron Von Tito, Travis Barker, he left the band to join Blink-182. So the story is that the Aquabats and Blink-182 were touring together and Blink-182's drummer Scott Rayner quit. And so in a pinch, they asked Travis to fill in. And they liked him so much and he liked them so much that he ended up becoming a permanent member of Blink-182. So he left the Aquabats in 1998. Of course, we now know Travis Barker because he's a Kardashian. Yeah, so I'm, I'm no fan of uh, Blink-182. And yeah, Travis Barker going on to be a, a, a second string Kardashian to me is like some, some strange Kafka-esque um, punishment. So um I'm, uh, <laughs> you kind of you reap what you sow, I guess, a little bit. But anyways, go ahead. I, I, I digress. What can yeah. I say? Anyway, one other thing worth noting about the Aquabats is that MC Bat Commander Christian Jacobs was co-creator of the Nick Jr. Kids show Yo Gabba Gabba, along with Aquabats collaborator Scott Schultz. Christian Jacobs is also on Yo Gabba Gabba as a writer, a director, a composer, and a voice actor. And it seems like his medium is as much visual as auditory. So the song I'm going to play here is the Aquabats. It's super rad. The video is, is, is humorous. So if you get a chance, check it out. This is the Aquabats.
else about the Aquabats? Uh, well, I like them a lot. So she mentioned Yo Gabba Gabba. I became, uh, I wouldn't say a fan of that show, but my daughter happened to be of that age when the show came out. And as a parent, you cherish any little thing that your kid likes. You become a fan of anything that doesn't make you want to go put your head in a vice and, twi and twist until the pain goes away. Yo Gabba Gabba was genuinely a cool show. And I really fell in love with it when Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo was on it, which was, which was regular, maybe even every episode. He would do a little drawing and it was great. All the bands that were on it, great. Weird Al was on it. And coincidentally, like Weird Al was one of the only things my kid listened to hmm. uh, when, when she was really young. Because we had this kind of like no kids bop rule in our house. We weren't going to make, <laughs> yeah, we weren't going to make my kid listen to like all that shit. So she listened to Weird Al. She liked Morrissey too, for some weird reason when she was kid. But anyways, again, I digress. Twice in an episode, well, maybe five times if you're really counting. But um, yeah, so there we are. Yo Gabba Gabba. I think it's kind of cool. And then I realized Aquabats are associated with that. And that's how I started listening to them. And I'm not like a huge fan, but I definitely dig their vibe. And to their credit, they do something that is really, really cool. So you could say at their origin, they were like a novelty act. They did fine music and it was cool and it was fun or whatever like that. But people get five years on into their career when they do that. And then they start pissing and moaning about how nobody takes them seriously. Good on the Aquabats. They never did that. And they just said, this is going to be our shtick and we're going to do it to death and it's going to be fucking awesome. And they were right. <laughs> so, Polly, what is your favorite band that we've mentioned today? I, so I probably should say Boston's. I'm not really happy with how the story of the Boston's has, for all intents and purposes, ended. So I'm going to take them out of the running. So I'm going to say that probably, you know, Rancid's got to be my favorite. You already know what I'm going to say. Oingo Boingo. Yeah, I, I, I've got a lot of love for Oingo Boingo, so I'm right with you there. It has been my dream since college to start an all-girl Oingo Boingo cover band. Named? Little Girls? Uh, no. No? Uh, no, I'll go with like Boingettes. That's kind of silly. You know, mm, I don't know. Okay, so I got to think about that one. Okay, get back to me. Okay. All right. To our listeners, thank you. We hope that you have found this as enlightening as we did when we were doing the research. If you feel we missed somebody that we should have mentioned, and I'm sure we did, please email us at statesidemadness at gmail.com. We might read that off on a future podcast. Polly, you want to tell us what our closing song is today? Sure do. So... It happens that Tim Armstrong, that guy from Blink-182, and Rob Astin, a.k.a. Skinhead Rob, all know the same thing I know. And that is that Baggy Trousers is the greatest madness song ever. Dare I say, the greatest song ever. So they decided to do a cover of it, and that is what we are going to play. Their cover, they're going to go by the name The Transplants, and... It's going to be baggy trousers. That guy from Blink-182, you can't even bear to say his name, huh? I cannot. Travis Barker. Ah. <laughs> 
Okay, on that note, thank you for listening, everybody. Come back in two weeks. We're going to have another cool episode for you. Goodbye from me. And that's a goodbye for me. Go get a beer, Stateside Madness. Nazi boys and nasty schools, headmasters breaking all the rules. Having fun and playing fools, smashing up the world or two. All the teachers in the pub, passing around the ready rug. Trying not to think about when lunchtime broke a ring again. Roll up all we had, but didn't really turn so bad. All we learned in school is how to bend up. So bad, trying different ways to make a difference to the guy. Masters had enough today. All the kids have gone away. Got to fight with them to school. Every time that is a rule. Sits alone and spends his game. Same old backsides again. All the small ones tell the tales. Walking home and squatching spells. Oh, what fun we had, but did it really turn out bad? All I learned in school was how to bend up, break the rules. Oh, what fun we had, but at the time it seemed so bad. Trying different ways. Trying to